If you have your Bible with you, if you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark. New Testament book of Mark, chapter 11. This morning, we will be reading verses 11 to 25. If you're a guest with us, we are walking through this gospel verse by verse, watching Jesus on the move as Mark presents Jesus as the king, and we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus as the king. Because we preach verse by verse, it doesn't always line up perfectly with the calendar, so I preached Palm Sunday's message two weeks ago. And today, as we visit Jesus in the book of Mark, it is Monday after Palm Sunday. So, on Jesus' calendar, we are looking at what happens tomorrow with the tree and the temple. All that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that was Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house? shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus was hungry, and so am I. When I 
talk to people about this passage. Everyone wants to know the same thing. What is up with the fig tree? Have you thought that? Have you asked yourself that question? Right now you're probably asking, what is up with this guy? Well, as I make me a sandwich, there are three ingredients here besides the bread. I got some cheese. I've got some ham or turkey. I'm not sure which one my wife packed me this morning. And I got some mustard that I'm going to hopefully not get on my clothes. And I'm going to try to actually get mustard and not the juice, right? A nice ham and cheese sandwich. Three ingredients on this sandwich. As I walk through Mark chapter 11 with you, guess what? There are three ingredients here too. So I want to walk with you through these three ingredients so that hopefully, here's one of my goals today, you will never forget what the fig tree is for. I hope this will help you remember. The first ingredient in this passage I want to show you is the connection between the tree and the temple. You have to know that Jesus is acting like a prophet here. The Old Testament prophets liked to use object lessons. Maybe they didn't like it after all. Maybe God liked to use object lessons. You think this is weird? In Ezekiel, I feel bad for Ezekiel. Chapter 4, God tells him to lie down for a year. He cannot move. He cannot go anywhere. So where does he go to the bathroom? Mm Mm-hmm. And where does he eat? How does he eat? Well, God helps him out. You can read this in Ezekiel chapter 4. He tells Ezekiel while he's lying down, he cannot even turn over to the other side. He has to stay on one side. He has to cook his food. And for firewood, he has to use dung, to quote the ESV. But what's going on there was an object lesson for Israel about the punishment it is going to receive for its idolatry. In chapter 5, it's not over. He tells Ezekiel to shave with a sword and to take all of his mustache and beard hairs and scatter them across the city to visibly demonstrate what God was going to do with his people for their idolatry. It's not just Ezekiel. Whew. I'm glad I'm not Isaiah. Go check it out. Isaiah chapter 20. God tells Isaiah, take off all your clothes and walk around for three years and do not put on anything. An object lesson, Isaiah 20 tells us, as a sign against Egypt. As hard as that may be, I'm glad I'm not Hosea. 
Do you remember Hosea? There's a whole book written about this object lesson. God tells the prophet to marry a woman of the night so that she will be unfaithful. To give an object lesson to all of God's people about the scandal of their adultery against God and the scandal of his grace to make them his people. When Jesus comes to the fig tree, it is not by accident. It is an object lesson. First and foremost, I want you to see the connection and that this, in the book of Mark, is a sandwich. Look at the format. You still have your Bible open? Mark is not, is not doing something on accident here. He starts with the fig tree in verses 12, 13, and 14. That's the top bun. And then if you look in your Bible, and you look at verses 20 to 25, he starts talking about the fig tree. That's the bottom bun. And then in the in-between, the meat, verses 15 to 19, you have the ham and cheese. It's the temple. What is the fig tree for? It is an object lesson for the temple. What happens to the fig tree is what happens to the temple. This is what Mark and Jesus are doing. Now, here's a simple question. When you make a sandwich, how do you eat it? Right? Unless you're a little kid who is picky and has to deconstruct everything, we, we don't do, no one goes home and makes a sandwich and does this. Everyone who makes a sandwich. Sorry. Right? So how do you know what the fig tree and the temple are all about? Second clue for the connection between the two. Jesus goes to the fig tree and looks for figs, and, and Mark gives us this weird comment in verse 13. He says, for it was not the season for figs. Now, Jesus, he grew up in this area. He knows all about agriculture. He would know when it's season for fig trees. He's not dumb and, and for some reason, Mark throws this comment in there that this is not the season. What you need to know about this is the word season here is not the botanical word for, for gardening seasons. It's not like, it's not harvest season. That's not the way Mark's talking about it. The word season here means a God-appointed time. It's like what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus says, the time, the appointed hour by God is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The reason there was no figs on the fig tree is because it was the God-appointed time for what was about to happen to the temple. Now you add into the fact, this is Pirates of the Caribbean too. If you were here two weeks ago, you know what I'm talking about. By the way, I finally went to a movie theater. But Mark, in verse 11, drops this weird verse about Jesus going to the temple and nothing happening and then leaving. 
and I told you what was happening then. They were setting up the sequel. And here we are. A tree and temple sandwich. Now, why am I going to all these links? Why am I doing all of this setup to, to demonstrate to you the fig tree and temple sandwich? Friends, if nothing else, listen, I want you to understand how important it is to read the Bible in its context. To read the Bible the way God gave it to us. We pick apart these verses like a little kid would pick apart his sandwich and then we don't digest it, we don't understand it, and we think God wrote the Bible wrong. And this happens all the time in this passage. Warren Wearsby sums up the questions people bring to the table with this passage like this. If Jesus had the power to kill and curse the fig tree, why didn't he just use that same power to restore the tree and make it produce the fruit? And then they make their assessment of Christianity based on these bad questions. More than one person has rejected the cross and rejected Jesus and rejected Christianity just because of the fig tree. Jesus was angry for what? How dare he kill a tree like that? And they decide once and for all that Christianity cannot be true. Look, if Jesus sinned, If he overreacted in anger towards the fig tree, then Peter, who was there, could not write this in 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I'm trying to disciple you here, brothers and sisters. When you open up the Bible and you have a question, Scripture interprets Scripture. And a question you have must be answered by the context that is around the passage you're reading. So the first thing I want you to see is that what happens with the tree connects to what happens with the temple. Now let's get into the details. The second ingredient on this tree and temple sandwich is the problem. And the problem is the same for both. The problem is no fruit. Look at verse 13. Let's start with the tree. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Then you get into the passage, Jesus finds all the people trading and selling, and he runs them all off, right? You know that part. Growing up in a church kind of like this, the only time I ever heard about this passage was when a band was coming to the church to do a concert on Sunday night. Now, what does a band want to do when it has a concert somewhere. Well, they got to make ends meet, so they sell some merchandise, right? My day, that was called CDs. I'll explain to the kids what that means later. And the only time I ever heard this passage was to say 
you cannot sell CDs at church. This is the temple, and Jesus would run you out of here. No selling in church. You know how they got to that? They didn't eat the sandwich, and they didn't connect the temple to the fig tree. That application has nothing to do with figs. Has nothing to do with the sandwich. Go back to the sandwich. It's easy to see the problem. Verses 12 to 14, Jesus is hungry. You got to stick with me. You can't, you got you to connect some dots here. This one's difficult. You got to use, you got to use some brain power on this one. Jesus is hungry. He gets to the tree and on the surface, it looks like there's fruit. But then at a closer look, after further inspection, there's nothing there. There is no fruit. The tree was deceptive. The tree tricked the one who was hungry. It offered nothing. Now watch what happens when Jesus gets to the temple. It looks busy. It looks like there's a lot going on for God. It looks like spiritual things are happening. But upon further inspection, Jesus finds nothing. There is no fruit in the temple. And in verse 17, Jesus teaches, and he uses two Old Testament prophets to expose the problem. One from Isaiah to talk about what the temple should be, and one from Jeremiah to talk about what the temple has become. I I want you to see these prophecies. The first one is from Isaiah 56. And in verse 7, at the the last line of Isaiah 56, verse 7, God says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah is making a promise about what life with God is going to look like when the Messiah comes. There's going to be a fruitful temple with people from all nations. The word peoples there is is ethne. It's it's where we get the word Gentiles and nations in the New Testament. And all of these people are going to have access to God. Isaiah is saying the Jews and the Gentiles are going to worship in the temple together. And their lifeblood in worship is going to be prayer. Now get this. When Jesus says that in the temple, guess where he is? There were different rooms in the temple. And the room that Jesus was in when he talks about this promise is in the court of Gentiles. The only room where this could happen, where the Gentiles and Jews could come together in prayer, the one room in the current temple where all the nations could come together and pray. And the problem is, with all of the selling going on, and all of the animals back and forth, and all of the commotion, and all of the business in the one room where the Gentiles could be, You could not pray. Have you ever tried to pray in a room where an ox is passing through? In our first world church problems, we have no clue what that's like. When a herd of sheep just bust through the church doors. Imagine trying to have a prayer group at the next Chiefs game. 
This is what's going on in the one room where the promise of the Messiah could happen. Worship, listen, has been crowded out by busyness. Prayer has been pushed aside by spiritual rituals and performance. But the temple should be a house of prayer. That's what it should be. Jeremiah chapter 7 talks about what the temple has become. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11, God says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, this is the verse where we get that interpretation that we shouldn't sell stuff in church. People take the word robbers and run with it. But the word we miss out on is that Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers. Robbers don't rob in the den. Robbers hide in the den. They do their robbing outside, and they go to the den to escape and to hide. Now, it's interesting when you look at the context, like I argued for, in Jeremiah, you see something totally different than what we usually think about. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. Jeremiah is preaching a temple sermon and predicting that the temple will be destroyed, that it will be shut down. That's important. Hold on to that. And he says in verses 9 to 11, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What is the problem that God is calling Israel out on through Jeremiah? It is not selling stuff in church. It is using the temple as a disguise for their hypocrisy. You think, Israel, that Monday through Saturday you can cheat on your wives and kill your enemies and steal money from people and live however you want and show up to church on the weekend and I'm going to like it. Now that sounds relevant. That sounds like a problem God would talk about. Israel thinks they can live however they want, and as long as they go to worship, God will have to forgive them. That's why in verse 14, Jeremiah predicts that God will destroy the temple. Now come back to Mark. When Jesus and the disciples go back to the fig tree, the bottom bun of the sandwich, when they go back at the end of the passage, what do they find? The fig tree, the object lesson, destroyed. Just like Jeremiah predicted. And just like Jesus is going to predict in Mark chapter 13, verse 2. 
He says, do you see these great buildings? Talking about the temple. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Friends, here's another tip about reading the Bible. The subtitles you get, those aren't original. That's just from the editor, right? What is the, what is the subtitle for this passage in every, every translation? Jesus cleansing the temple. You look at this sandwich, Jesus is not cleansing anything. He is condemning the temple. He is cursing the temple. He is shutting it down. That's what happens on Monday. Let's just think about Jeremiah's prophecy for a minute before we see the application that is very surprising. How many times do we treat the church like Israel treated the temple? How many of us live however we want through the week and think if we just do enough, if we just show up on Sunday, if we just give a little bit of money, if we just serve a little bit, if we just pray a little bit, that God will have to forgive us. He'll have to show us mercy. That's his job. Romans 6.15, Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Friends, if you use this place, if you use your quiet time, if you use baptism and the Lord's Supper as your den to hide the way you really live and what you really believe, Jesus looks and he sees what is there, no freedom. Our rituals and our sacrifices do not accomplish anything. The fig tree of religion does not work. Here's the thing. This isn't a new message. God has been preaching this the whole time. Go back to another prophet. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. This is God's word. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God wants. Fruit. Friends, if the temple... And all of the sacrifices were never meant to work. How are we supposed to have life with God? And we find the answer, not in the temple, but in the tree. Mark chapter 15, verse 37 to 38. Jesus uttered a loud cry on the cross and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus dies, the temple is shut down. 
because Jesus is the one-time sacrifice that gives us the right as Jew and Gentile to have access to God and worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ was treated as the robber. He was killed for our hypocrisy. And he was raised up on the third day so that you and I could have his fruit. So that we could have his righteousness and appear before God as holy and blameless. That's why in Mark, when Jesus died and the court curtain is torn, a Gentile sees it and says, this truly is the Son of God. Because Jesus has done on the tree what the temple never could. Friends, the question is not, have you done enough good in your life? Have you been baptized? Have you prayed a prayer? Have you taken the Lord's Supper? Have you given the church enough money? Have you done enough good in your life to have access to God? The question is, have you hid yourself in Christ who died for you? And when you hide like that, you open up who you are, you know your sin, and you confess it to God, and you hide in the righteousness of Christ, he will save you. That's the good news of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Let me press it one more time, friends. If you just go to temple, you have no hope. You must become the temple. Do you know yourself to be the temple? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The reason Jesus can shut the temple down and the reason it doesn't work is because God does that work in us. And you have to understand that to get the last part of the sandwich. It seems out of nowhere But when Peter asked Jesus what all of these things mean, he throws a curveball. And you've got to stick with me through the first two ingredients to get this third one. The third ingredient in the sandwich is the application. Now look with me at verses 22 to 25. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Do not take this passage and make Jesus your genie in the lamp. The Lord's Prayer tells us it is his will be done. His kingdom come. You can't pray 
whatever you want and assume that God's going to have to answer you no matter what. Don't, don't do that. But anyone who understands the gospel, anyone who understands what Jesus did with the temple and Jesus making you the temple cannot say, I don't know how to pray. Jesus gives us access to pray. And he gives us three ways to pray in this passage. We should pray confident. Do not doubt in your heart. We should pray gracious. Wherever you stand, forgive. I'm not going to belabor the points here, but do you pray confident? Do you pray gracious? If you need to forgive someone, God is not going to hear you. Don't test him on that. And the application you need today is going and forgiving so that you can pray confident. But the third way to pray, I want you to see this, it's kind of tucked away in there, is to pray together. Pray together. Verse 24, I'm going to give you the southern hillbilly translation of Mark 11, verse 24. I'm from the the hills of Georgia, right? My family has lived their whole lives for centuries in Georgia. And so I can, I can stand today with some genuine um, flavor, tell you the hillbilly version of Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Are you ready? I want you to read it, but listen to the, the, the real version. Therefore, I tell y'all, whatever y'all pray, Whatever y'all ask, y'all believe that y'all received it and it will be all y'all's. What's that? One, two, three, four, five, six y'alls. Literally, in Mark 11, verse 24, and he does it in the other verses, every single command, every single word in the Greek is plural. You can't pull that off in English. You, 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 you got to get Southern. Everything Jesus is saying is y'all. Here's the, here's the truth. Prayer is not an individual exercise. And Jesus' commands are not best accomplished alone. Jesus has said he wants his place, his temple, to be a house of prayer. And we are the temple, the people of God. The question, friends, is if people look at us as a collective, could anyone accuse us of being a house of prayer together? We might not sell CDs in a lobby, but the church as a whole has got really good at crowding out prayer. We need performance. We need platforms. We need programs. We need action. We don't need prayer. If you look at us, that is true. That is the way we worship. We are crowding out our very purpose. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears 
much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. James says, pray for one another. Friend, a Christian without prayer is like a fig tree with no figs and a temple with no fruit. It does not exist. Christ has brought you, friend, to God so that you can come to him and pray with your family with confidence and with grace. Here is the point that Jesus is making through Mark. You've heard this expression in life, God, when he closes one door, he opens another. That's not always true, but it's true in Mark 11. He shut the doors of the temple so he could open the doors of prayer for you. Use it. Open that door wide together. Friends, that doesn't have to be here on a Sunday. That can be in your living room on a Thursday morning with three other people and some coffee, wherever two or more are gathered together. It's not something that somebody has to program for you. It's, it's, it's a movement when the Holy Spirit works in your heart to get with someone and to lift up each other and to pray for the needs that you see and to pray confidently that God would move in the hearts of the people you care about. Bear some fruit and open the door of prayer. It's what Hebrews is telling us. I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews ties all these things together as we close. Verses 15 and 25 of chapter 10. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christ has opened the door, brothers and sisters, with grace and forgiveness, with confidence in that gospel. Let us, hand in hand, together, take the advantage we have with the access to God that we have and pray. That, brothers and sisters, is what the tree and temple 
sandwich is trying to say. May we digest it and apply it in our life. Let us pray.